Welcome, listeners, to your set of no sleep tales. Three no sleeps to have your skin crawling, tugging, and mind skittering for answers. Your first tale is A Spider Bit Me But Didn't Make Me Spider Man by Random Writer. Your second tale, Strings by Devil Juice. And your final tale, The Impossible Ones, The Nebel Case by Nick Botic, a veteran on this show. And speaking of veterans, a huge thank you to my white tea warlords, Marvelous Matthew J. Bauer, the Magical Maya, and the hero that is divided by zero. Thank you so much for your tier of support. You're helping this show grow and reach other brilliant people like yourselves. I am so grateful to have you, and you're single-handedly improving the show. So again, thank you so much, mates. And of course, I need to also thank my Ograin forces. Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lee Bauer, Lorraine Crisanto, Mace Joe, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffaelli, and Michelangelo Yacone. You guys and gals, keep the lights on, the show's blood flowing. Thank you so much for your support too. If you want to support the show, swing on by my Patreon, where there are multiple levels of support with different rewards. Now, I'm not going to keep you waiting. Turn off the lights, turn up the sound. And, it wasn't like you were planning on sleeping. Right? (laughs) A spider bit me but didn't make me Spider-Man. A spider bit me. Those little bastards that scurry around on eight legs. Abominations. The whole lot of them. If I'd known they'd colonize my basement, I'd have acted faster. But I was bitten too late, so it doesn't matter anymore. It was late when it happened, and all I heard outside my open windows was the monstrous chirp of crickets. Also, little bastards but at least they tried to sing. I left the room and entered the hallway. An immediate temperature difference was obvious, so I almost turned back into the room just to be in its cooler and safer summer night air. But I continued out anyway, into the deeper part of the dark hallway upstairs, until I met the wall with a blind hand. I slid my finger along its bumpy surface, feeling for a light switch. I brushed something fuzzy and solid instead. My fingers and arm recoiled. I moved backward in the hall, my full body now recoiling. Like a yo-yo string, a thick line of web had attached to my damn index finger. At the end of the line, a curled-up spider bobbed about on the bushy hallway carpet as I dragged it. I could nearly feel the tension just from its weight. My finger was tugged each time it bounced. I froze right in front of the door I'd just exited. The spider stopped too. I wished against the odds that it was paralyzed. Then it sprung to its eight feet and began reeling itself up its web to my finger. Shit, shit, shit! It fell from my face like a three-burst rifle. Yet nothing I could say would hurt this horror. 
so I bolted backward into the bedroom and slammed the door mid-web. I tripped on a shoe and fell on my ass. The spider's spasmodic forward movement still burned its after image as I sat safely on the cool carpet. The crickets had fallen silent. I heard each pump of rushing blood as my own heart strove to catch up with my fear. I felt a tickle on the back of my left hand. My right smacked down on it. <sighs> False alarm. Then came a pinch on the nape of my neck. What the and my hand shot to it. I clasped my fingers around the hard body of an arachnid. Without thought, I brought my hand around so I could see it. Its pale green body had faintly red streaks running along its exoskeleton. Before I could observe more of the spider's body, I realized that its mandibles were presently plunged quite deeply into the muscle of my thumb. I whipped my hand toward the closet door across the room, but its body curled around my thumb, thorax hugging my skin, so that all eight legs clung firmly. The reddish streaks seemed to pulsate. I blinked a few times. They grew darker, until the spider was patterned with crimson vessels that scattered and pumped on the surface of its body. This sight was enough to stop me briefly. The terror reanimated me. I threw my hand toward the closet door once again. This time the spider was flung from my thumb and hit the wooden surface like a heavy marble. I shuddered. It bounced a bit and fell to the carpet, feet from the closet. It uncurled from its bald posture and ran through the little opening under the closet door. The crickets were still silent. The thumping of blood pumping through my head reached a peak, then began to subside. Soon, it came close to matching the crickets until an absurd quietude fell upon me. I listened to the squirting venules in my eardrums as blood was forced through them and into the narrow passages of my skull. My thumb fell limp. It seemed sudden. I lost control of my whole hand. The onset of paralysis was like a cold liquid climbing up through the veins of my arm. My legs gave out and I dropped to the floor, landing almost flat on my back. The cold paralysis was upon me in full, enveloping almost every voluntary muscle cell of my nervous system. Like the fledgling muscles attempting to hold an infantile neck, my head bobbled between my struggling shoulders, eventually coming to a rest on the carpet. I saw only from my periphery the gentle and involuntary motion of my chest, as if another breathed for me. My head was positioned such that I stared into the gaping blackness under the bed. I could see the little hairs of the carpet as my perspective shifted into the miniature polymer jungle. A slight breeze came into my eyes from under the bed. The central air was coming on. I could still feel. I felt the breeze continue to brush my face and tickle my eyelashes. Then. Something else was beginning to tickle my ear, then my leg, then my arm. Then, it was everywhere at once. It tickled, and I need to scratch. It was cold, and I could not rub my hands together. The fuzzy legs of a pale green spider kissed my cheek eight times and walked along my lashes. 
My eyeball was centimeters from the underside of its carapace. Some hairs on the bottom of its thorax poked my eyes. Tears filled the bowl of my eye sockets. A sting zapped through my arm. Then my leg. Then the spider on my face made its way to my hairline and sunk its hollow needles deep into the flesh of my forehead. I felt it all too much. Now I wished for a greater paralysis. I burned everywhere. More spiders joined the first on my face. I felt their piercings too. No longer could I count the pale green bodies pattering my face. The burning continued, and my swelling face began to close over my eye sockets, obscuring my vision further, forcing liquid out. I already couldn't see out of my left eye, for one of the spiders had sucked it dry. It hung from my head like a limp balloon. The feeding arachnids filled their bodies so full that I felt the pressure from my swollen face alleviate. My cheeks, a favorite spot for the spiders, deflated. I kept my eyes closed, but through my eyelids the faint glow of red light pulsated gently which became increasingly brighter. A sweet smell penetrated my senses, suddenly but temporarily. The light from the pulsating crimson carapaces faded to blackness and my consciousness ceased. I came to in the hospital. Never would I walk again, I was told. I had only one eye, my right, and everything else was paralyzed too. It would be four months before I could talk again. The whole time I was planted in the hospital, confined to a bed and unable to communicate save some eyelid flutters. The doctors never found the cause. They couldn't. They tried. They said. My house, which I would never return to. They scoured for some cause, but it turned up nothing. Just a regular old house, they said. Worse yet, not a soul in that hospital believed my story. They laughed at me. Laughed. There was no evidence, they say. Not even an abnormal cobweb to consider. I was sent to the WW Neuropsychiatric Institute. To this day, I enjoy looking out of my reinforced window. And to this day... I frequently glimpse a pale green spider crawling atop the white metal mesh covering my window. As the eastward sun shines through the pane, the shadows from the spider's legs dance throughout the room again. I do doubt I'll ever leave. Strings. I haven't had control over my own actions for the past 10 years. It wasn't a sudden jarring change when it began. It was more so an insidious setting in of sorts. Much like a deadly disease that begins with a light cough. I don't know for sure what I caught. And I don't know for sure when I caught it, per se though I do have a pretty good idea of when it might have happened. My then fiancé and I 
had gone to a comedy club on a date. It was a dingy little venue. Not the sort of place you'd ever expect to see anyone even halfway famous. Higher-end places didn't exactly fit into our budget at the time. All the same, though, we ended up having a really good time. The headliner was a local small-time act, but you could tell from his performance that he wasn't going to be a small-time for much longer. I swear, that man was one of the best stand-up comedians that I've ever had the pleasure of seeing, on TV or otherwise. That same night, I was struck with an inspiration of sorts. Not the usual little vague feeling I'd occasionally get when I came up with a semi-decent idea for my writing. No, this time was something different, something stronger. It was as if a muse had taken hold of my very being and was ready to guide my hand as soon as I put pen to paper. Needless to say, I didn't exactly try to restrain this feeling. Over the next few days on my off time and in between waiting tables, I wrote a full screenplay. This was a tad bit out of the norm for me, as my usual fare was short stories and the occasional half-baked attempt at a novel. My writing itself was different as well, no longer filled with the starts and stops of indecision and self-doubt. My pen flew across the paper with a singular purpose that I had never quite experienced before. It was powerful. Meaningful, even. When I held the complete draft of it in my hand at the end of it all, I felt a sense of completeness. Somehow I knew I had made something worthwhile. Looking back on it now, I knew it was then that it had truly started to take hold of me. I had no way of knowing then, but it was already too late for me. Things moved surprisingly quickly after that. I got in contact with the production company and, almost before I knew it, my screenplay was becoming a full Hollywood production. It all seemed too good to be true. Suddenly, everything in my life seemed to be falling into place. My fiancé and I went from living paycheck to paycheck in rural Kentucky to living the sort of high life that we had always half-jokingly dreamed about. I could scarcely believe it was all really happening. I pinched myself more than just a few times in those first few months before I truly had myself convinced of the truth of it all. I took the majority of the profit I'd made off the initial sale of the script and gave my now wife the wedding of her dreams. Maybe it was a bit irresponsible of me to spend that much money after having just made it, but I felt the gesture was only fitting. Even as we struggled along every day, barely managing to pay our bills, she always believed in me and supported me in my dream of being a writer. The success I had suddenly found was as much hers as it was my own. A nice wedding was the very least I could do for her, and it was only the beginning of what I had planned for our future together. Besides, it was more or less a certainty at that point that more money would soon be on the way. The high of success, unfortunately, didn't last much longer after that. I was sitting in the audience for the premiere of my movie when I first saw them. At first... They were indistinct like glints, that I could only just slightly catch sight of when the light hit them just right. The more I found my eyes focusing on them though, the clearer they started to become. Eventually, I finally realized what they were. A set of threads, stretching upwards from my ankles and wrists to an indeterminate location, right above me. 
like a puppet's strings. I chuckled a bit, joking to myself that it was likely the work of a spider with a sick sense of humour. I moved to brush them away, but I didn't. Perplexed, I tried again, but my limbs would not obey me. I couldn't move. And that was just the beginning of the waking nightmare my life has become. All of a sudden, with seemingly no warning, I had become a passive observer in a life that was no longer my own. My body moved as normal, going about my life and doing all the things I would normally choose to do on my own. Yet I was very much so not the one choosing. It was like walking through a door in a video game and suddenly losing control of your character as a cutscene begins. My cutscene, though, was seemingly never ending. However, I quickly realized that I wasn't the only one. The first person other than myself that I had seen with the strings was my agent. He was the person who had gotten me my first movie deal and was meeting with me that day to discuss my new script that would soon become my second. I say my script, but I suppose it wasn't really mine in the truest sense. I hadn't exactly written it on my own. I'd been there for the whole process, sure, but it was all the strings work. I wasn't even really all that fond of it. My agent absolutely loved it though. And when I saw the strings rising upwards to the sky from each of his limbs, I realized that I had a pretty good idea why. I thought about a lot of things that day, sitting idly in that office. Had the strings truly only just caught hold of me in that theater? Perhaps they had been with me for even longer, guiding me with an unseen hand before I had even noticed them. Had I actually earned any of my success? Or had it just been given to me? There was really no way to tell. And I seriously doubted I'd ever get an explanation out of a few pieces of thread. After that, I started to see the strings everywhere. I saw them attached to the actors in my movies, passerby on the street, politicians, and even a few homeless people that I happened to come across. The prospect of so many people not being in control of their own actions was terrifying to me. Who or what was controlling us? What was their purpose in doing so? Questions like this ran rampant in my caged mind for months, filling me with so much dread that I felt I could drown in it. In fact, I almost did. However, eventually I sort of just gave up, despite my constant existential dread. It wasn't like I had the choice to do anything about it anymore. Besides, shouldn't I be somewhat grateful? In truth, the strings had happened to make my life so much better. Clearly, things could have turned out a whole lot worse for me, depending on the whims of those ethereal bits of thread. Maybe I'd just be better off enjoying the ride. I was naive. I didn't recognize the woman that showed up at my door that day whilst my wife was out. She was a complete stranger to me, beautiful and scantily clad. I wasn't looking at her body though. My gaze was instead drawn to the all too familiar strings stretching endlessly from her limbs and up into the sky. I invited her inside. 
I didn't try to hide my infidelity from my beautiful wife. The strings wouldn't even let me try. Soon enough she was gone. I had lost her. The love of my life and with her, I had lost any hope for a happy future. I was completely alone. Not even my family would have anything to do with me after what I had done. I couldn't blame them really. Though it wasn't by any choice of my own. I had completely fallen into the trope of a person who becomes an asshole immediately after gaining even a little bit of fame. I wouldn't have wanted to have anything to do with me either. I just wrote mindlessly after that. I churned out movie after movie, each of them somewhere in between subpar and awful. I felt utterly broken. There was nothing left in the way of passion for my work anymore. It hurt less when I stopped caring about anything at all. I did take some small comfort in the endless scratching of pen against paper though, as well as my abundant supply of cheap scotch. I certainly hadn't enjoyed it when the strings first forced the bottle to my lips, but I had quickly learned to love it. I welcomed any opportunity to simply not feel. Lately, I've been working on a romantic comedy of sorts. If I had any control over my lips, I wouldn't have been able to call it a comedy with a straight look on my face. In my honest opinion, it's a soulless piece of garbage, akin to late Adam Sandler vehicles. It was a work that relied on the star power of the cast rather than the quality of its content in order to turn a profit. That and way too many poorly timed and poorly executed fart jokes. This isn't the sort of opinion I'd normally have the ability to share though. I did end up meeting a familiar face though. The lead actor was actually the same comedian I had seen in that comedy club all those years ago. He looked older now, so much more tired and empty of the vibrant good humor that used to almost burst out from him. It was like looking into a mirror complete with those damnable strings. His sad gaze strayed to above my head. His face smiled, independent of his own will, but in his gaze I saw recognition, knowing, and the sort of gnawing guilt that eats you from the inside until there's nothing left. Now, reading this, I'm sure you're likely wondering, if you're able to control your own actions, then how are you writing this? Surely the strings wouldn't allow you to do so, based on what you've said so far. The simple fact of the matter though, is that I'm still very much so not in control of my actions. In all these years, there hasn't been a single moment that the strings have relinquished control over me. As always, they are forcing me to write this, even now. I have no idea what the goal is. Everything they do seems completely random, Maybe there really isn't any sort of deeper meaning to the strings. Perhaps the unseen puppeteer, if there is one, simply enjoys playing with our lives. Still though, I can't help but find myself thinking that there has to be some sort of greater design. An end goal of some sort, a reason for all this madness. But it's like trying to solve a puzzle from the perspective of one of the pieces. I could never hope to ever fully understand. I do have some idea though, as to why it's announcing its presence in this manner. It's just a guess really, but 
given what I've experienced so far, I feel pretty confident in that I'm right about this. Not that it does any sort of good at this point. All I can say is that I'm truly so very sorry for doing this to you all. I hope with all my heart that you didn't read this all the way to the end. The Impossible Ones, the Nebel case. I've heard a lot of stories from my grandfather. He was a detective for 27 years of his life, and I grew up listening to the tales of he and his fellow lawmen. As a child, he obviously amended the stories quite a bit to make them age-appropriate. But as I grew up, more and more of the true stories came out. Starting about two years ago, my grandpa got sick. He's been on a slow decline ever since, and while it's been one of the hardest things I've ever had to deal with, his illness acted as a catalyst for a set of stories he'd never before brought up. He said he kept them filed away deep in the folder he doesn't like to open. He calls them the impossible ones. But this last one, the one he told me last night, he says it's the one that still keeps him up some nights. The one he thinks about every day. He says he's looked over the case files more times than he can remember. Done a full re-examination of it all more times than he can remember. And it never makes any more sense. He said he only told me now because he can feel in his bones that he doesn't have a lot of time left. I recorded him telling me the story. So what follows is my transcription of the case verbatim. I've only excluded his coughing fits and any off-topic remarks made during the telling of the case. The case was a murder kidnapping, or at least that's what it looked like. And it was me and Olsen. I've told you about him. There was a family, the Nebels. There was Benjamin, the husband, Jennifer, the wife, and Katie, their six-year-old daughter. One of their neighbors had gone out for the paper round. One of their neighbors had gone out for the paper around 6am and saw the Nabelle's front door wide open. When she went over to see if everything was okay, she saw the wife's body. The neighbor called 911 and eventually, we were sent over there. Now, when I say there was no outward sign of a struggle, I meant it. There was no sign whatsoever that anything had happened. Well, except for the dead body. But even her body, there were no wounds, no marks of any kind. <sighs> I'm getting ahead of myself. On our way to the house, it came over the radio that the husband and daughter were unaccounted for. If you're thinking, the husband did it, we did too, obviously. Problem was, both the family's cars were still in the garage. So we think they might be on foot. Some officers canvassed the neighborhood and no one had seen them, including two neighbors that were on their porches for hours starting in the early morning. No one had heard any kind of commotion coming from their house, either. I mentioned the wife's body. She didn't have a hair out of place. She was on her back in the kitchen. About a third of her upper body was under the table. We found out after the autopsy that, well, she just died. There was no cause that they could find. 
She'd been a perfectly healthy woman. Didn't smoke, didn't drink, ate right, exercised. It was like she'd just blinked her eyes and gone from alive to dead. Anyways, we searched the house. We went through it with a fine-tooth comb. Basement to attic. Found nothing. No evidence of a struggle. No weapon. Nothing. So we left. We'd spend hours in that house. Thought maybe we should come back in a day or two with some fresh eyes. We went over to where Benjamin worked. He was a supervisor at a lumber yard. According to his co-workers, he'd shown up at work that morning just before 5am. When he got in, he worked on his narrow crate thing he was building in his office. Something he told his co-workers was a project for his house. According to the other morning supervisor, he'd only built about half of the thing. Around 6.15, he said he was running to the bathroom, and that was the last anyone saw him. They never saw him leave. While we were at the lumber yard, I realized I'd left my notes at the house. We drove back over there, and we got there while they were taking the wife's body away. As soon as we walked in, the stench hit us like a bus. It was, well... It was what a newly discovered but long dead body smells like. We knew it obviously couldn't have been the wife. We asked a few of the officers and forensics folks that were still at the house what the smell was, and they told us that it had only started a few minutes before we'd gotten back there. I'm not exaggerating when I say the smell was everywhere in the house. I've smelled some dead ones before, but this smelled like every wall in the place was lined with corpses. Pretty quickly, we found that the smell was strongest leading up to the attic. Now, I told you before, we checked the attic. I checked it myself probably five times, but we went back up, me and Olsen. I went up the little pull-down ladder first. When I poked my head up, I saw something. I saw a piece of wood, like a box, you know, a crate. It was shaped kind of like a rifle case, maybe three feet tall, two feet wide, maybe six inches deep rectangular. It was standing straight up, and there was blood leaking from it. We called the photographers and all the people in there. They all did their thing, and finally they pull out all the nails and open the box. Out falls the husband. Think about that. This guy was maybe 5'10". 140 pounds, and he was put in a 3 foot by 2 foot by 6 inch crate. His bones were just a mess. His insides, all his organs, they were flattened. They were just wet, squishy pieces of fabric. Almost. He was stuffed in there like... I don't know what like. He was just a rectangle of blood, skin, and parts. His skin had the discoloration of a body that had been dead for about two weeks which obviously didn't make sense since they had seen him at work that morning. He was also missing his eyeballs. We were standing there to rationalize the whole situation when something caught everyone's ears at the same time. A little girl's voice calling out for help. What followed was a sequence of all the people in the attic and the rest of the house and the people out on the lawn as well as the few people standing on the other side of the yellow tape, all saying some variation of the phrase, it sounds like it's coming from over there. 
Problem was, every single person swore they heard it coming from a different direction. Me? I heard it from right above me, no kidding. The first time I heard that little voice say, Help me. I looked straight up, right up at the rafters. Of course, she wasn't there. It was just my brain's response to where it perceived her voice was coming from. We had listened to every one of these people tell us where they thought they heard her voice coming from. People swore up and down they heard it coming from the kitchen cabinets, the bedroom closets, the refrigerator, the tank behind the toilet, for God's sake. People on the street said they heard it from underneath cars, on the side of the houses next to the Nabels. Everyone heard her voice for about a minute and a half, two minutes tops, and then it just stopped. About two weeks after that day, the wife's sister had a funeral for Jennifer. It went fine. They buried her and all that. The husband's remains were cremated not long after that and put on display in a different part of the cemetery. I don't remember exactly when it happened, but at some point over the few weeks after he was cremated, someone stole his urn. It was missing for about six months, and then one day we got a call found out a groundskeeper at the cemetery had called in. The wife had been dug up and posed like she was leaning against the grave, just relaxing. She had the urn in her hands, but it was wrapped in skin. Well, they tested it, and it was the husband's skin. They'd pretty well reconstructed the man after he poured out of the crate, and he hadn't been missing any skin. And remember, I told you his skin was discolored? Well, this skin was perfectly preserved. And inside the urn, with his ashes, there were three eyeballs. Only one of them was the husband's. It's been, what, 22 years? I still hear that girl's voice calling out sometimes. And I don't mean my memory or mind is playing tricks on me. Ask your grandmother. She heard her. The same six-year-old voice. And then, I remember it was May 12, 2007. I was going to pick up a pizza for us. I saw that girl. I saw Katie Nabelle. I don't mean I saw her grown up. I don't mean I saw a little girl that looked like her when she was young. I mean I saw that fucking kid. She was standing outside the Walgreens, right by our old house, crying. I pulled over and got out of the car. I started to walk up to her. I can't explain how I felt in that moment. I was nauseous. I was so, so afraid. Terrified. More than I've ever been. So, she looked right at me and said in that same voice, Help me. Please. I don't know what the hell happened, but she just disappeared. I never took my eyes off her. She was just there one second, gone the next. I thought I was losing my mind. I was seriously worried about my mental health. But then, about an hour after I got back home, the phone rang. It was Olsen. Hadn't talked to the son of a bitch in five years, and he called me that night. Said he saw Katie Nabell sitting on a bus stop bench crying. He lived on the other side of the country. Killed himself the next day. <sighs> There's never been a good ending to these stories. I know. 
If there was, they wouldn't be the impossible ones. I'd have figured them out one way or another. And I know I've told you some others, but that girl's voice still wakes me up in the middle of the night. Sometimes I hear it from downstairs, sometimes from the bathroom. Sometimes I'll be laying on my side, facing away from your grandmother, and it'll sound like it's coming from her mouth. We've never found the trace of that girl. Nothing. I told you what they do with those cases. The... God damn it. I... I'm sorry. Let's... That's it. That's the worst one. Some of the other ones might sound worse to you, but that's the worst for me. Okay? He told me he didn't want to talk about it anymore, and said now that he told me, he'd never talk about it again. Well, listeners, a huge thank you to the three no-sleep authors that provided their stories for me to narrate. The authors once more in order of their appearance in this episode are Random Writer, Devil Juice, and Nick Botic. Go check out their Reddit accounts, and their website address will be in the show notes. Support those authors with a little bit of feedback and some love, because it helps them grow and gives them the energy to produce more awesome content. So I have to say, the spider story had me wondering whether or not he was going to swell and swell and explode with mini spiders all out of his body, just eating him from the inside, slowly but surely. And the ominous ending seems like a curse has been put on him that is slowly taking his life in the most gruesome way, one bite at a time. And the story about the strings, I have no idea where the creature is that controls them, but it is truly terrifying. Goodness. Lastly, the unsolved case with the six-year-old girl. Yikes. The ending is just unexpectedly horrific. The three eyes appearing in the urn that's wrapped in skin. What the hell, right? Just oozes of cult activity here. Well, mates, I hope you enjoyed the stories as much as I did narrating them. Have an awesome Wednesday, and I'll see you Friday for some more tales to get the skin crawling. As always, mates, till next we meet.